everybody, and welcome to Snescapades, a chronological journey through the North American Super Nintendo Library. Three games at a time. We play them briefly, we judge them harshly, and we rank them, and that is pretty much all you need to know. I am Steampunk Link. I am Emmy Zero. And that whole thing about playing them briefly, that is super on point today, because all of these games are either... Very, very difficult that I did not get very far into them, or just borderline unplayable. Yep. <laughs> and so that's how it went for me, too. Yeah, I feel like I've barely scratched the surface of these, and yet um, we're going to talk about them for about an hour anyway, as if we're experts. So <laughs> That's the Snescapades difference. That's what you come here for. <laughs> that's right. So uh, where are we right now? I think we're still in November, correct? Still in November. We got a little bit more November to go. I think actually looking at this next week is going to be our last week of November games. Ooh, that's that's exciting. We'll get to get, get a new month after that. That's fun. But we are still in November right now. I'm going to say I think November on the whole, has not been as much of a bang-up month for for games on the Super Nintendo as October was. Yeah, let's see what we think of these games, though, because these are some pretty big names here, actually. We've got two very big names and uh, another thing that we'll we'll get to. (laughs) Yeah. First thing, so we actually had some pretty big names last time as well. What did we have last time? We had Spider-Man and the X-Men, and we had... Roadrunner's Death Valley Rally. Right. So yeah, so we had two big things then. We got two more big things today so i guess let's just uh, dig into them this is the one that we were going to talk about last time but had to get pushed back prince of persia what's up pop good old pop so prince of persia the maybe like the one big franchise out of all these that we're covering that is actually a video game first and foremost, interestingly enough. That's right, yeah. (laughs) This is a port, obviously, of an older PC game. This is a game that has been around for a long time. There are still games with the Prince of Persia licensing being made today. They made a movie about it back in the day. We don't need to talk about that too much, though. Not really. It sure did have Jake Gyllenhaal playing a character that was called in the script the Prince of Persia. Not great there, yeah. <laughs> Here we're just kind of pretending like, oh yeah, that, that white dude, yeah, he's totally Middle Eastern. You know, like Jesus. I don't think any of the people that had lead roles in that movie were actually, like, of Middle Eastern descent. So this game has uh, two kind of interesting stories behind it. One is the creator, Jordan Mechner. Uh, who's made a couple of other things. We'll talk about him in just a little bit. But I also wanted to talk about the company that published this game, Bruderbund. And yes, that is how it's pronounced. I am fairly certain. Bruderbund was founded in 1980 by the Carlson brothers uh, as Gary and Doug in Eugene, Oregon, though uh, they would eventually move their headquarters to Novato, California. They would also pick up a few other siblings along the way, their uh, sister and uh, their I think another brother of theirs uh, would end up joining as well. So the original reason for starting the company was just to publish games that Doug had been working on. In uh, 1980, the company would publish a trio of sci-fi strategy games called Galactic Trader, Galactic Revolution, and Galactic Empire, as well as a few others, all on the Apple II. They'd released another dozen games in the following year as they also brought uh, their sister Kathy, that was her name, Kathy, into the fold. Almost all their games would be released exclusively on the Apple II with a few exceptions. Some of their games, like uh, big ones like Choplifter, which uh, a lot of people big on old PC games probably recognize that name. 
Uh, that one came out on other systems. They also had like one or two that came out exclusively on the Commodore VIC-20. Anyway, uh, Bruderbund was a powerhouse throughout the 1980s. They produced dozens and dozens of games and uh, also a lot of educational software. Some of their most well-known games were Load Runner, a game that would be ported to a lot of other computers and consoles, including the NES, and still shows up on a lot of modern compilations of classic software. They also made Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, which would become a sizable property in its own right, with many spin-offs and adaptations. Uh, a cartoon series based on the franchise came out last year on Netflix, so it's still a going concern. It sure is. Yeah, and we will actually be talking more about Carmen in later episodes, but uh, suffice it to say, if you were playing games uh, as a kid back in the 80s and 90s on Ap Apple II computers, you almost certainly played a Bruderbund game at some point. As the 80s wore on, the company started dabbling in productivity software as well, and their print shop software became the crown jewel. It was so successful that many companies tried to create their own versions, but Bruderbunds would remain the gold standard for quite some time. They also created the Mavis Beacon Teaches Typing series, and just in case you didn't know, there are still versions of these software packages being released on modern computers to this very day with the Bruderbund branding. I uh, can't imagine their print shop could hold a candle to things like the Adobe Creative Suite these days, but there's something really appealing about the idea that I could just buy Bruderbund's print shop once and own it, and it's mine forever without monthly fees. What a concept. Yeah, that does sound pretty nice, all things considered. Yeah, it's 30 bucks. Yeah. Like, other titles in uh, Bruderbund's gamography include ports of the SimCity games, Kid Picks, a sort of gamified print shop for kids, and they also published the original Myst. Perhaps you've heard of that one. Bruderbund appears to have been a very prominent software company, which probably has a lot of you guys wondering what happened to them. So uh, in a YouTube video from January of 2013, entitled Doug Carlson Bruderbund, Founder and Author, Global English, if you wanted to go look for it, Doug Carlson himself describes the changes that led up to the company's demise. After taking the company public, it had done really well, and profits went up every year for about five years, up until Mist happened in 1995. It was so successful that there was no way the company could do better the following year, and the sequel, Riven, didn't come out until 1997. He also says that the company wasn't really able to keep up with how fast the world of software started moving as more and more people started spending their time surfing the web and other alternatives to their products, like Print Shop, were more widely distributed. He also lays some of the blame at the feet of a company called SoftKey that was acquiring educational software companies around this time to inflate their stock value um, in a, a term he called uh, roll-up, where they would basically take companies and gut them of their staff and coast off of the licenses for as long as they could before, you know, just picking up more companies. They had actually outbid Bruderbund to acquire the learning company two years prior. Uh, sales from Bruderbund's print shop were strong enough to keep them safe from buyout for a time, but when SoftKey acquired Mindscape, they made Mindscape's print soft competitor Printmaster available for $29.99 with a $30 rebate offer. As the competitor's product was now free, Bruderbund took a huge hit, and that made them easy pickings for SoftKey to acquire them as well. By this point, SoftKey was operating under the name The Learning Company, so somewhat ironically, the company Bruderbund nearly acquired themselves, ended up acquiring them, 
and laid off about 42% of the staff in the aftermath. Uh, uh, through a series of other acquisitions and business deals, most of Bruderbund's classic series have homes and are still relevant. The Bruderbund named is now owned by Encore, which still releases versions of Print Shop and Mavis Beacon, like I said before, um, and some of their other educational products. Uh, many of their entertainment properties would end up with Ubisoft, uh, who have published the modern Prince of Persia games. So, after all that, let's move on to uh, Jordan Mechner really quick. Mechner's first game was also published by Bruderbund. It was 1984's Karateka, or Karateka. I'm not actually sure how that's supposed to be pronounced. In Doug Carlson's YouTube video I mentioned earlier, he mentioned that Karateka was actually the second game that Mechner had submitted to the company, but that he'd passed on the first one. He didn't actually say what that first game was, though he did share a funny anecdote in which uh, Mechner had told him that by changing a single byte of code in his game, the game would play upside down, uh, that game being Karateka. Uh, Carlson thought that was kind of funny, and he decided to print the upside-down version of the game on the other side of the floppy disk when the games went to market. Uh, he basically liked the idea of people calling up their customer service reps and saying, hey, why is my game playing upside-down, and having them just say, oh, just flip the disk over. I bet the customer service reps loved that. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they found it just as hilarious as he did. As people who used to work in customer service uh, on on the phone lines for a big software company, no less, uh, don't don't do things that you know your so- your your customer service reps are going to have to deal with. Yeah, please please don't do that. Anyway, Mechner still appears to be active in the games industry. His gameography isn't quite as extensive as one might imagine. They're all pretty big games, though. There, there's not like a bunch of stuff in there that like didn't make any kind of lasting impact on people, I feel like. Karateka was a, a very prominent early game, and he actually uh, worked on a revival of that in 2012. I remember that game. It was, it was kind of neat. It was all right, yeah. A little basic for me, but it was it was cool to see it. And of course, I mean, you know, when you make Prince of Persia, which is you know goes on to be one of the most influential games. I don't know what else you need, but he also worked on a game called The Last Express, which is another really fascinating game. And uh, it definitely makes sense now, knowing that he was the mastermind behind that game as well, because like Karateka and Prince of Persia before it, it uses a lot of rotoscope animation to create its effects. And I think it, it's It's a very odd effect in The Last Express, but I think it's kind of cool. I'll just give a a real quick rundown of what that game is. So uh, The Last Express is a mystery puzzle game in which you play as an American who has stowed away upon the Orient Express in Paris, making what will be its final trip to Constantinople as the world descends into war, i.e. the Great War, World War I. As he arrives, he finds his contact has been murdered and quickly disposes of the body and assumes the man's identity. He finds himself entangled in a mystery that could have serious political ramifications. It's a really interesting game. So yeah, I I recommend uh, checking it out if you can, either by playing it or by just watching a long play on YouTube. It's a really fascinating game. So... With all that said, I guess it is time to talk about Prince of Persia. I feel like that was a lot of build-up for uh, a game that I was not all that into. Yeah, me too. I really wanted to like this, especially given that we both had, I think, a, a surprisingly positive experience with the last 
cinematic platformer that we played on the Super Nintendo out of this world. I think both of us had, you know, kind of low expectations going into that. We ended up feeling pretty good about it. And this game, I wanted that to continue. Uh, But unfortunately, I really, really didn't like the way this played. And I didn't think that this style of gameplay suited what this game is very much at all. Yeah. So, you know, I think this game had the problems that I was sort of expecting from out of this world, but didn't really experience. Yeah. So in a cinematic platformer, your character's movements are pretty set. Like if you hit forward, it's not like a Mario game where, you know, you could just tap forward and just move a little bit. Your character is going to make like a full walking animation cycle. They are animation dependent. Basically, you press the button and the animation plays out in full and the game essentially has to be designed around those limitations out of this world did it pretty well they really crafted the world around that character's moveset really well in a way that i don't feel like this game does and i don't know if this is limited to this port i do know that this port has like a few more levels and things like that that aren't in the original and it has some updated graphics as well even if you know what prince of persia is Um, There's a couple of things that are kind of specific to the original Prince of Persia that I think are worth talking about. The main one, I guess, that seems very striking to me is that, so the setup for this game is that the evil vizier, who is actually named Jafar uh, in this game, has taken over the kingdom of Persia and has uh, locked the princess up in a tower. You are a foreign adventurer basically who had fallen in love with the princess and has been placed in the dungeons of the palace by jafar and you have two real-time hours to make your way through the palace fight all manner of guards avoid traps uh get through a bunch of different uh platforming challenges to stop jafar and rescue the princess And the clock does not stop, really, for anything. So if you keep dying on the same level, time keeps advancing, which means that you always have this ticking clock that the game will remind you of to kind of push you forward. And that is the setup here. In comparing this game to Out of This World, there are a lot more levels in this game, Uh, as you might expect, because uh, Out of This World, if you never die in it, uh, takes about, like, less than half an hour to play through. Whereas in this game, you probably will use at least an hour and a half of time getting through in order to to get to the end of the game and and successfully complete it, uh, assuming assuming you're very good and, and don't uh, don't die at all. I did want to kind of set up what the, the overall kind of design of this game is, because I think that helps a little bit in explaining why this game is so frustrating. Because you were saying, I think that, you know, essentially it doesn't really feel like the prince's movements are particularly well-suited to what he's asked to do in this game. So this game has a a little training mode, which I I appreciated being there, but I didn't feel like ultimately helped me all that much. No, me neither, yeah. So a thing that kept happening to me while I was going through these training levels was, um, say like you'll have fall that would kill the prince if he jumped from a ledge, but you have to find a way down without dying. Uh, One way to do that would be to position the prince just at the edge of a drop 
And then I think you like push down in some other button and this will cause him to hang from the ledge. And then you can drop down, thereby making a fall that would have been fatal, non-fatal. But to do this, you have to be right up against that edge. So basically, the, the thing you're talking about, you have to position the prince very carefully at the edge of a ledge in order to kind of hang down. But because of the way the prince animates, he takes these big, wide steps whenever you move him. There's a lot of very narrow platforms and areas where if you mess up the inputs, you don't just move a little bit. You fall completely off of the side or you take this big step and end up really where you don't want to be. And this is like one of the core things the game is built around. I found it almost impossible a lot of the time to position the prince just where I wanted him to be so that I could drop down from a ledge without him just walking straight off of it and dying. There's the the sword fighting sections as well, which I never got a handle on. No, me either. I think they're kind of a rhythm thing. Like, I think you're essentially trying to get in between the the enemy's uh, attacks and and essentially, like, break their defense. But those are, I guess, the thing that has the most lineage specifically from Karateka, which was all about, like, these sort of extremely well-animated, rotoscoped, one-on-one fights. It's it's pretty easy to just get totally rolled by enemies if you're not timing things correctly. I, I mean, obviously, this stuff looks pretty good from a visual standpoint in the game, but it doesn't really feel nearly as fluid or fun to play as it is to watch. The thing about this game that I found really sort of disappointing was how little in the way of like specificity there was to any of these encounters. Like it, it did kind of just feel like a slog to get through some of them because the levels are comprised of so many pretty similar looking screens of super precise, frustrating jumps fights with, with other swordsmen and, you know, just, just areas where the game really wants you to use your movement capabilities in really specific ways. It isn't really up to the challenge of, of having you do that. You know, really, my my experience with this game was largely that I would come up on a new challenge, fiddle with the controls many, many times, usually dying, you know, a bunch of times in the process, make it through to the next area, and then have to repeat the same thing over and over again in order to get on to the next level, at which point you're reminded again that you've lost a pretty significant amount of time because... Uh, you're not very good at playing the game, or at least I wasn't. Because that's one of the things with this, right? Like with the, the two-hour time limit, if you do badly enough in this, it is going to be better to just restart the game from the beginning and try again, because you'll have lost so much time that you're not going to be able to finish the game at the time that's left. So... You know, I will also say, I don't think the rotoscoping works all that well here. I don't think the Princess Sprite looks all that great. It's got a very strange kind of, almost like a dithered paper doll look to it. That That's really strange. That might be uh, a consequence of this game having like a little bit too much graphical fidelity being on kind of stronger hardware i don't know i think there's something to be said for that because something i noticed like when we talked about best of the best a few episodes ago because we had definitely played that game on the nes as well and i think that the super smooth rotoscoped look of those sprites 
actually worked better on the NES. I felt that that, that smooth animation was much more impressive there than it was on the Super NES. Kind of a shame, really. I do think there's some beautiful animation in this game, but the stuff I'm really impressed with in it is mostly in the like non-interactive opening and ending cutscenes for the game. I wanted to like this game a whole lot more than I did, but I found it really frustrating. And one thing that this game does make me think about So Jordan Mechner, we didn't mention this in sort of like the sort of rundown of his career, but he was one of the main creative leads on the early 2000s revival of Prince of Persia, The Sands of Time, which was kind of the second big sort of successful era for Prince of Persia. And one of the things that game added, in addition to translating sort of the the feel of the cinematic platformer into a 3D game, was the ability to, instead of just dying and having to restart, the, the ability to rewind the action to the point before you made the mistake that caused you to die and just retry that one bit again. And I do think that that sort of idea helps to make something like this so much less frustrating. And I know that that's a thing that was added to this series much later on, in addition to a whole bunch of other stuff, but I can absolutely see why that's a thing that they thought was, uh, you know, a clever addition to this because it, it absolutely is. And it does help if, you know, you're having trouble with one specific part of the game, allowing you to, to essentially just repeat those actions again until you, you get it right. Because, Having to redo whole sequences like this over and over again in this game is it makes the the whole experience of playing the game pretty unappealing past a certain point. Well, is it time to go to the list? Yes, let's go there. Let's find a place for dear old pop here. I'm trying to think. Do we have another cinematic platformer on here besides Out of This World, which obviously it's not going anywhere near that? No, I don't think we do. How about if we start down at number 59 with Spider-Man and the X-Men? Sure. Would would you put this above Spider-Man and the X-Men or below it? Honestly, probably put this below Spider-Man and the X-Men. Even with that game's litany of issues, I do think that it is ultimately a more enjoyable game to play. I'd probably put it below, like, True Golf Classics Wild-Eye at number 61, too. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. Look at it. So you've got Phalanx and Strike Owner STG at 62 and 63. A couple of shooters. Here's... An interesting one. What do you think about this compared to Hyperzone? I mean, I think Hyperzone is more immediately playable than Prince of Persia. I think Prince of Persia is going to have a much steeper learning curve just to get it off the ground. But there's so much more to Prince of Persia. I think Hyperzone runs out of steam pretty quickly, personally. So, okay, we're back to, to the two games we were just talking about here, Phalanx and Strike Gunner STG. Do you have a feeling about whether or not these games stack up better or worse than Prince of Persia? Well, I still kind of have a soft spot for Strike Gunner just because, you know, as I've said before, that kind of just just very chill vibe of that game makes it pretty appealing to me. So I personally would put Prince of Persia below that, but I don't know if I would actually like recommend that to more people. I think I can go with that, too. I think that in this case, I wouldn't really give Prince of Persia the edge just because I don't really think that the stuff that makes it unique really makes it a better game. Yeah, what do you say we put Prince of Persia between Strike Gunner STG and Hyperzone? 
Sounds good to me. So Prince of Persia is going to be our new number 64 game. Prince of Persia 64. Was there a Prince of Persia on 64? No, there wasn't. All right. Well, we've still got Star Wars to go, but let's um, let's get this other thing out of the way first. What do you say? Yeah, let's do it. Road Riot. Four-wheel drive. Yeah, good old Road Riot. So this is another THQ-published adaptation of an Atari arcade game. Other games with that pedigree are Pit Fighter and Race Drive-In. So you might already have a little bit of an idea where we're going with this. (laughs) Yeah. I will say, just to get the praise out of the way here up front... I do think this game is more playable than either of those. Yeah, I'll uh, I'll go with that. So yeah, given that Pit Fighter and Race Drive-In are literally our two bottom-ranked games on the list so far, that's not really a huge vote of confidence for Road Riot, but hey, any port to Storm, right? This game was developed by Equilibrium, so I guess all of the games have different developers. Um, but uh, Equilibrium, they have a very brief gameography, They are a company out of Sausalito, California. They're an imaging solutions business. I don't entirely know what that means. Um, Yeah, that sounds vague enough that it could mean a lot of things, honestly. (laughs) Yeah, their claim to fame was the uh, D-Babelizer, which is now media-rich, according to the Equilibrium website. Boy, I don't know what either of those things are. Yeah, I'm not familiar with these either. Their products, the content automation, the fastest automatic dynamic imaging and video server on the planet that... Yeah, I don't know what any of this stuff means. Anyway, um, this company thought it might be a good idea to dabble in video games very briefly in the early 90s. They only released a handful, and then they stopped doing that pretty quickly. So that's all I've got to say about Equilibrium. It was hard enough finding information about Equilibrium, because there are a lot of companies with the name Equilibrium out there. And also a really bad Christian Bale movie. Gunkata, folks, not even once. So Road Riot Four-Wheel Drive, uh, as you might expect, is a racing game where you race four-wheel drive vehicles. Yeah, like like little dune buggies with cannons on them. But that didn't really seem like a useful addition they made to those things. But hey, I guess, you know, it's something to do. This is, like we mentioned, an arcade adaptation, just like the other Atari games that were published by THQ that we've talked about so far. It is also, much like those games, a pretty poor representation of the arcade game, which has these giant digitized sprites. This game doesn't really do that. Uh, It also does the thing that I believe both Mario Kart and Top Gear did, where the game is, whether or not you're playing it in two-player, this game does have two-player mode, uh, you do get a split-screen view. Presumably that was a hardware and programming limitation where the game just had to display like that. The top screen always focuses on your red four-wheel drive vehicle. The bottom screen just gives you kind of a wider view, but honestly, there were definitely times where I forgot which screen I should be looking at. When I was playing, the bottom screen was actually just like from the perspective of one of the other cars. Oh, okay. That is, I'm sure, what the deal is there. It's so choppy that maybe it's just hard to tell what's going on on the screen sometimes. This has got, like, the frame rate issues that Race Driving had. It's that bad. 
Except it's not trying to push the same kind of technological boundaries that race driving was. Race driving was like a full 3D polygonal game. Uh, this is using kind of the faux superscalar effect, the same sort of thing that Top Gear was doing, but not nearly as well. The game has a variety of different race courses. You start out, whether or not you pick the beginner, intermediate, or expert version of the game's difficulty level, you start out with the same sort of beginner course. And after that, you're given the option to select one of uh, a number of different courses, each of which is headlined by a really gross racist caricature of the like person that is quote-unquote hosting that race in their part of the world these suck i'm just gonna say yeah like some of them are really gross and racist some of them are just ugly and it's like why is this even here they're all ugly caricatures like the the lady from switzerland is an ugly caricature uh but the the caricatures of people from like the middle east and africa or or mexico just they they are atrocious looking like i felt like garbage just looking at them on the the game's level select screen and they don't really mean anything either like these characters don't show up in the game at all it's not like you're racing against them the main differences honestly are that like the the color of the background surrounding the racetrack and some of these sort of props that are to the sides of the racetrack are different for the different levels but really there's not much in the way of variety here uh, there's no music during the races either Yeah, I don't even know why they bothered with this one. So you can fire cannons at your opponents, but it doesn't seem to do a whole lot. Really, the biggest problem is that there are obstacles in the middle of the racetrack that you'll spin out or explode if you touch one. But I never found it all that hard to get back in the race. Granted, I was playing on the easy difficulty, so... Maybe that had something to do with it. The easy and the intermediate and the challenge level seemed basically identical. Your vehicle, it's pretty easy to control, really, but in a way where it doesn't really feel like there's much of a sense of momentum to it. Like, you're kind of just weaving it back and forth across across the track, trying to avoid obstacles. It's pretty easy to spin out, but also easy to get back into the race. Let's just get this one over with. Do we want to put it on the list? And Sure, let's, let's put it on the list. Well, we know it's going to go above Pit Fighter at 118. Is it going to go above the Rocketeer at 117? I think so. I think it's more playable than the Rocketeer. I, I don't like this game, but I do think that... The fact that it's possible to see additional levels in it and and complete them without using a level select code does give this one a bit of an edge for me. I can get behind that reasoning, yeah. Robocop 3 then is next up at 116. Now this one I don't know about. I think that they're both really bad games. At the very least, I can say that Robocop 3 isn't as grossly racist as this. Yeah, honestly, this game might be slightly more playable than RoboCop 3, because I just remember RoboCop 3 just being, like, just really frustrating in that, you know, like, you'd you'd have to, like, move at a snail's pace because enemies could start shooting at you before you could see them. At least this game, you can play it against another person, which maybe makes it a little bit more fun. It can't be less fun. All right, so you know what? I guess it's going to keep going up then. I mean, so I think RPM Racing has better presentation than this game. Like, it doesn't have the frame rate issues. With RPM racing, like, sometimes your car would explode, you'd respawn right at the base of a hill, and wouldn't be able to get up enough momentum to actually get back up the hill. 
That is a thing I never encountered in Road Riot. Yeah, that's true. Part of me that wants to kind of put this above RPM Racing, but another part of me wants to put it below just because... Again, you know, RPM Racing did the whole double resolution thing, but... A little more technically ambitious, for sure. At the end of the day, even though it is more technically proficient and ambitious, I think 4WD might actually be more playable. Were either of us able to actually finish a race in RPM Racing? I don't remember. (laughs) That's not a great sign, though, the fact that we can't remember. So then we got Home Alone at 114. I think for me, this might actually be where it stops. I definitely don't think I would put it above Earth Defense Force at 113. No, no. Home Alone, I do think there's an interesting idea at play there. I just think the game is dreadful. And I would rather look at big ugly sprites of Daniel Stern and Joe Pesci's characters from Home Alone than I would any of the horrifying creatures that they concocted for this game. Um, Yeah, I 100% agree. I I think this could go below Home Alone. So this will be our new 115? Yep, that sounds good to me. Congratulations, Atari and THQ. Uh, You're getting better. Didn't quite make it out of the one-teens, though. Quite, yeah. That's got to be our lowest debut at this point, right? Um, yeah, probably. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get on to our last game then that certainly won't go nearly that low, and that's Star Wars. Super Star Wars, even. Super Star Wars. This is the the Star War, but it's the Super... Star War. I am not the most knowledgeable of Star Wars canon. I am not a huge Star Wars fan, but that doesn't mean that I'm just going to make a bunch of jokes confusing this with Star Trek, okay? Those jokes are old and lazy. We all know that the guy that you see, the big bad guy you see when you get the game over, his name is Dark Vader, Okay, I know that. I'm practically a Star Wars expert now. Dark Vader, uh, grandfather of the uh, the eventual Star Wars villain Kyle Ron. Right. So anyway, this is our first LucasArts game, I believe. Uh, yes, I believe so. And so LucasArts, there's a story there. Well, I guess first I'll mention this one was published by JVC Musical Industries, a subsidiary of JVC, which, as the name would imply, was mostly involved with publishing music. But for a time, that company also dabbled in uh, video game publishing. As so many did. Like Equilibrium, it's not something that they did for very long. They kind of stopped doing that pretty quickly. So quickly, in fact, that when this game got reissued for the Player's Choice line... Nintendo actually had to publish it themselves because JVC Musical Industries was not doing that anymore. While they were publishing games, they published ports of the East series, specifically East 1, 2, and 3 on the Famicom. They also did a port of Boulder Dash on the Game Boy. So a lot of ports. Yeah. It's kind of weird that this is a thing that they did because this is this was a big original licensed game for the Super Nintendo. Yeah, absolutely. This one was actually developed by Sculptured Software, who we've talked about before. So many times. (laughs) Yes, but the big production logo, when you see when you turn the game on, is that of LucasArts. Uh, LucasArts was founded in 1982 by who else? 
George Lucas. Yeah. To further diversify his brand of entertainment companies. And that was actually originally called Lucasfilm Games, right? Yeah, Lucasfilm Computer Division Games Group is apparently the full name that the company originally had. It was also a joint venture with Atari, who put up a million dollars in seed money, which granted them first right of refusal for publishing on any game that the company made for the first several years. So the company's first games, Rescue on Fractalus and Ball Blazer, wonderful name, were released on the Atari 5200 in 1984. Later on, the company would be known for its point-and-click adventure games like The Secret of Monkey Island. The backbone of their point-and-click empire would be built upon the uh, engine that they created for their first big point-and-click adventure game, Maniac Mansion. LucasArts built an engine that they would call SCUM, short for Script Creation Utility for Maniac Mansion, which would end up being used in a ton of classic titles throughout the late 80s and 90s. Not only did LucasArts use the engine in their own games, like Full Throttle and Monkey Island, but it was also used in uh, games by the company Humongous Entertainment and many of their series like Freddy Fish, Pajama Sam, and Putt-Putt. Yeah. It was even used in uh, some early aughts games by Humongous and Infogrames. Very uh, well-known engine. It's It's got its own emulator out there for running You know, a lot of these classic point-and-click adventures games. But uh, LucasArts wasn't limited to point-and-click adventure games. They had Star Wars at their disposal and produced a lot of games based on that franchise. Uh, Most of these would be contracted to outside developers, though, in the early days. The Super Star Wars trilogy was developed by Sculptured Software on the PC, and the 1995 first-person shooter Star Wars Dark Forces was developed by Big Bang Software. The space combat series Star Wars X-Wing was developed by Totally Games throughout the 90s and RPG series Knights of the Old Republic was developed by BioWare in the early aughts. Really prominent game, that one. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of the things you're talking about, I mean, Star Wars as a property has as good of a legacy and as as strong and meaningful a legacy in games as practically any other franchise. Like, there are some games in there that are routinely brought up and talking about, like, the best game in whatever those genres are. Knights of the Old Republic, X-Wing, TIE Fighter, the original Star Wars Battlefront games. There are a lot of really legit games that, that have the Star Wars name on them. Yeah, and you have to keep in mind, too, that it wasn't until, like, the late 90s that the Star Wars Special Edition started hitting theaters when, you know, the Star Wars movie franchise really kicked off again in earnest. Star Wars was still a big franchise, even though, like, a lot of people in our generation grew up without, like, a new Star Wars movie in theaters throughout our childhoods. That kind of tells you, you know, like, just how prominent some of these games and other um assorted Star Wars things were. But I mean, yeah, it must have mostly been like games and toys, right? Uh, and books, too. Books were a really big thing for Star Wars in, in the 90s. Um, actually, a lot of the games from the 90s that were really big deals, like uh, the Dark Forces and Jedi Knight games, uh, tie into some of the most beloved Star Wars books from that era, too. So, so there were various ways in which that franchise sort of kept going, even without mainspring of a new movie every few years. So 
So in 2004, Jim Ward stepped in as the president of LucasArts and started doing some major restructuring of the company, which wasn't doing well at the time. He drastically cut the workforce down and reined in a lot of the contract work, bringing more development in-house, though not all of it. Uh, Game Informer's Andrew Reiner wrote an article about the fall of LucasArts in 2014, focusing on this era of the company. Uh, Many former employees talked about Ward in less than flattering terms. Ward had come from the film side of things and wasn't crazy about the concept of delaying games, claiming that in film, that often wasn't an option. You just get things done. Under this philosophy, LucasArts and Pandemic Studios managed to get Star Wars Battlefront II done within a year, and the game was a success. However, that success came at the cost of the well-being of many of the folks who worked on it. To hear them tell the story, Ward was forcing crunch on his workers at a time when that wasn't really how things got done quite yet. Uh, today, crunch is endemic in the game industry, and why many people only work in games for a brief period of time. And it's maybe... One of the biggest, although not the biggest problem in gaming culture, as we've seen in this past week specifically, but, um, you know, it's it's a real problem in the industry and one that maybe you could say it probably didn't completely get started here, but, uh, you know, maybe Jim Ward has a role to play in that. So uh, thanks for that, Jim. Yeah, like it's it's definitely a mindset that did start to propagate more in, in this time period, I think, from, from people like him, and it's a it's a terrible practice. Yep. Crunch is bad, and crunch happens because of capitalism, and capitalism is bad. Um, I don't care about the politics of them right now. <laughs> so anyway, um, despite all of that work, though, LucasArts would still suffer massive layoffs in 2008, having canceled many of their point-and-click adventure games prior to that, no longer believing that they had a place in mainstream gaming by the mid-2000s. And in 2012, Lucas would sell all of his companies to Disney, which would put the final nail in LucasArts' coffin. So that's that's LucasArts. So shall we talk about Super Star Wars? Yeah, let's talk about Super Star Wars. So Super Star Wars is a side-scrolling, kind of run-and-gun platformer, primarily based specifically on the original Star Wars movie from 1977, commonly known as Star Wars Episode Four: A New Hope. And yeah, it kind of does, for the most part, what it says on the tin. It is based on specific environments and sequences from that movie, though, given that that movie actually is not tremendously action-heavy by, like, modern standards, it basically expands a few key sequences and kind of invents new sequences based on kind of rough ideas from that movie into the majority of its playable levels. So that means that in addition to recreating some pretty iconic moments, like for example, the Death Star trench run from the end of the movie and the sequence where the characters have to break into the Death Star to rescue Princess Leia, it also has like a lengthy sequence where Luke has to fight his way up the Jawa sand crawler and through the middle of it to rescue R2-D2. Loads of stuff like that to basically create fun video game levels out of what is seen in the movie. Yeah, which I I respect that. Absolutely. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And, you know, they come up with some fun stuff here. Like, honestly, that Jawa Sandcrawler level is a pretty strong design for a level. For reasons that we'll probably talk about, I don't think it works that well. But I understand why they would do that. 
So yeah, you at the start of the game play as Luke Skywalker, who has a blaster. He is not a Jedi yet, so he doesn't have a lightsaber. And later on in the game, once the story gets to them, you can also play as Han Solo and Chewbacca. And you actually do get Luke's lightsaber in this game later on. You do, but not at the beginning. Again, I'm going to compare this a bit to uh, Spider-Man and the X-Men. Production-wise, that game was pretty bare-bones, where this one just immediately immerses you in Star Wars. Like, you've got the logo, you've got the adaptations of the music from the movies. You even have the opening text crawl uh, the, which I don't think works very well in 16-bit. Kind of hard to read, honestly. I, I get why they tried to do it, but yeah, it's it's not great. The game has starts with like a very nice full-screen image of the Star Destroyer hovering over the like Rebel ship before panning right down to the planet below and uh, getting right into the action with Luke fighting a bunch of creepy little monsters in the desert. <laughs> Yeah, he fights monsters in the desert, which, you know, again, we're just, we're embellishing stuff. That seems like a very dangerous desert as presented in this game, by the way. At the end of that first level, you fight, like, a sandworm that's coming out of the Sarlacc pit? Like, I don't know if that's supposed to be, like, the iconic Sarlacc monster from Return of the Jedi. I think they call it a Sarlacc, so I think you're actually fighting the Sarlacc. Yeah, no, that's a really dangerous desert. I don't know what this teenage boy is doing out there, honestly. That first level, though, you know, it, it was fine. It was pretty fun. You know, enemies would just kind of, like, jump out of nowhere and, and just kind of be right in front of you or right behind you suddenly. But, you know, it wasn't that bad. And then you go into a level where you're on the, what is it called? The land speeder? Yeah. Okay. Wow. I, I knew that name. That's weird. Okay. You know, they, they kind of do the mode seven thing with that. I, I wasn't terribly impressed with it. It looks nice, but it's not particularly fine, honestly. So the point of that level is you're trying to find the sand crawler. I felt like the best thing in that is that there's like a big background image of the sand crawler that gets larger as you get closer to it. That's some nice presentation stuff there. I do like how the Jawas, when you blow them up, make the little Jawa noises from the movie. I had a friend back in the day who loved this game, and I remember he would always joke that, oh, actually, they're saying curse words, but they're just being bleeped out. <laughs> It does kind of sound like that, actually. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so so instead of saying, they're, oh, my God. Oh, my God. It's happening to me now, too. Oh, man. Wow. Oh, well, that's fine. I guess it just means I won't have to use the spin jump sound effect as much. <laughs> so once you get to the sand crawler, though, I feel like things kind of fell apart for me. Yeah. This is where, like, precise platforming. Not really up to the standards, I think, of what they want you to do with them in that sand crawler level. Yeah, there's also other actions that you have to perform, like Luke has a slide, which I could never quite get him to perform as consistently as I needed him to, <laughs> so there would be times where, like, on the interior of the sand crawler, where you have to, like, slide under these laser doors because you can't just walk through them. You have to be at just the right spot, to, and you have to do it at just the right time to get him to slide under it, and you're probably still going to take damage anyway, and... It, like, Everything does damage to you. There are guns and flamethrowers everywhere. It's just obnoxious. Yeah, so, like, this game almost plays like a Contra game in that there's these, like, many, many enemies. You have a very rapid fire gun that you can use that you can angle in different directions. 
But the way in which it's it's pretty different from Contra is that you have a pretty big life bar in this game. So instead of just dying in like a few hits, you can you can take some damage. But that almost doesn't matter by the time you get to the sand crawler, because like you said, there's so many things just all over the screen that are are, are coming at you and that that can damage you that you can't really it, you I feel like it's it's almost impossible to avoid taking damage in, in levels like that. I mean, again, this is, you know, a design philosophy in which, you know, there was the assumption that, okay, the kid is probably going to get this for Christmas, meaning this will be one of maybe two games that they will play in the next year. So they've got a whole year to get through it, and they're going to want something that's going to keep them going that long, and, you know, presumably this would do it, I guess. So I can kind of understand where they're coming from, but we are sort of having to review these in a modern context, because I think it would be silly to pretend that, like, the last several decades of video game history haven't happened, or that, you know, like, the video game industry is the same then as it is now... So, you know, which is why, like, I feel like I've got a docket for being as frustrating as it is because it's not really conducive to, you know, the, the modern gaming environment, you know, like, it, like, people don't want that anymore. I did not get to the point where you get to select Han and Chewbacca as playable characters. I also did not get to the point where you get to use the lightsaber. I know there are codes that you can kind of use to circumvent some of that, but I didn't use them. No, and and I mean, I think that given how hard those first few levels are, that kind of speaks to the overall design of this game in a way. This game, I feel like, is almost really good. It's got pretty good controls. It certainly looks and sounds great, but like... The levels are just too relentless. The platforming challenges are are just a little bit more precise and numerous than what the controls are really up to the challenge of letting you letting you kind of do reliably. The presentation is really great. I don't know if I'm crazy about the sprite work here, but I think it gets the job done. Personally, I don't love the Luke sprite. I think it's a little weird looking. He looks a little bit potato faced or something. But I think that the the Han and Chewbacca sprites look pretty good and a lot of the enemies look nicely detailed. Well, do we want to wrap this up then by finding a place for this one on the list? I think so, yeah. So what do you say we go right back to uh, our number 59 game, Spider-Man and the X-Men Arcade's Revenge, and start from there? Yep, I think this one's going to go up from there, though. I think they've done a much better job of adapting the the license. And, I mean, it's almost not fair because it is, like, kind of being done in-house from the, the folks who who actually make that license. But still, you know, it's just there's just so much more care in, in, in the presentation. I agree, uh, for sure. So, so where do you think we should start looking at this? I mean, I could see us going up considerably from there, really. Like... We've used Krusty's Funhouse as a as, as a sort of measuring stick a lot. I think it goes up from there. Oh, you know what? We've got the Adams Family at 31. I think that's actually a pretty good comparison point for this. I'm going to say, on the one hand, the Adams Family is a good game. I, I don't know that the Adams Family itself is is tremendously committed to adapting the Adams Family license in the same way this is. Like, I think that, like, a lot of the Adams Family is, like, enemy sprites, for example, are things that just seem like very generic platform game enemies. Right, but, I mean, on the other hand, you have to see, like, what are they adapting? Like, the Adams Family, they're adapting essentially a sitcom, right? Totally, totally. But I do think that, that being said, the Adams Family 
I think it's, for one thing, a little bit more ambitious of a game than this in terms of the style of game it is. And I do think it works better. I do think it's less frustrating to play and a little more interesting in that there's an exploration element to it. There's some nonlinearity. I hear what you're saying. My argument for Star Wars, though, would be that while I think that Adam's Family is less frustrating on a level-by-level basis than Star Wars is, I think, like, as an overall world design, sometimes the Adam's Family can be a bit frustrating just kind of trying to navigate. No, I, I, I get that, yeah. So, yeah, I think we could go up from, from Adam's Family then. Um think the comparisons get a little tougher to make as directly as we were from from the Adams family. I, I'm going to say that I probably wouldn't put Super Star Wars above the game I'm about to mention, but I do think that maybe Legend of the Mystical Ninja is kind of an interesting comparison for Super Star Wars, because I think that's also a game that is just a little bit too unfriendly and frustrating for you to like the presentational aspects of it quite as much as as you want. I do think I would agree with you. I think The Legend of the Mystical Ninja, though, has some different kind of stuff that is less common in the SNES library, at least at this point. So yeah, I, I could definitely see Star Wars going below Legend of the Mystical Ninja. I don't know if I can put it above Mario Paint at 23, just as a sort of nostalgia thing, but I, what do you think? I think that Mario Paint is such a cool, unique toy. It is pretty limited in some ways. It's a, it's pretty hard to compare these games in, in, in many ways. A better comparison might actually be number 24, East 3, Wanderers from East. East is actually still surprisingly high on this list, really, considering everything else that's on it. Even though East 3 has, like, really great music, I think that obviously Star Wars has, has the presentational edge on it in a pretty major way. You know, honestly, though, I'd still probably rather play East 3 than Star Wars. Yeah, I mean, those Sandcrawler levels were so frustrating that I I don't expect I'm going to be able to get through them in a reasonable amount of time, and therefore I'm probably not going to go back to the game. Yeah, whereas with East 3, we were each able to make it through, I think, at least about a quarter of that game. So now we're back down to Spanky's Quest and Super Buster Brothers, because I I think that the more I think about it, I don't really want to put Super Star Wars above East 3. But I don't know, do you think it goes like just below that, or do you think it kind of travels further back down? I don't know if I would put it above Spanky's Quest. I think Spanky's Quest is a pretty fun and charming little platformer. It's got its own presentational thing going, and I think it works. Um, Super Buster Brothers, on the other hand, I don't know if I quite appreciate the presentational aspects of it as much, because it's just kind of photographs of various places without a real theme to it. You know, like, the theme seems to be like, we're Buster Brothering in this part of the world now, and now this part, you know, and that's really it. I I didn't love the way that game played so much that I'm going to really kind of go to bat for it here, I think. Probably Super Star Wars has enough to recommend it that it it stacks up to that. You know, I mean, seeing as how Spanky's Quest and Super Buster Brothers are sort of cut from a similar cloth, it would be interesting to have something just kind of break those two up. I I think I feel pretty good about this. I, I think I do too. Super Star Wars, that is our new number 26 game. A little bit higher than I thought it was going to go. I wasn't crazy about it, but I do really respect just um, just how much they went for it. It does Star Wars the way I wish that that X-Men game had done X-Men and just really reveled in it. Not for nothing, even though this game is is pretty frustrating, this was a hugely popular game and people did really love it, like your friend. Now, if you want a Star Wars game, this is this is a thing that's going to give you that. It looks like Star Wars. It sounds like Star Wars. It's it's right in there. 
we've got to finish off November. We've only got three games left. That's right. Uh, what are those games? So those games are Wordtris, Wing Commander, and X Zone. So Wing Commander that that means we're going to get a, a a second helping of uh, Mark Hamill, right? Probably this game doesn't have the FMVs that he was in, but maybe some still photos. Well, anyways, folks, uh, I think that's going to wrap it up for today. Thank you, folks, for joining us here. And um, yeah, before we go, uh, I just wanted to say a little brief thing. So we're closing out Pride Month as we record this. This episode's going to release a little bit after that. But I just wanted to mention, as we do close out Pride Month, please remember that the successes that the the LGBTQIA rights movement has seen would not have been possible without the civil rights movement, and that the Stonewall riots were started by trans women of color. You know, the the fight for freedom and justice that we are engaged in, it's a fight for everyone. So even if it's not in the news, uh, or if, you know, the month is over, please continue to support these causes, support Black Lives Matter protests, and support trans women of color. Uh, happy Pride, stay safe, ACAB, and uh, J.K. Rowling can go to hell. <laughs> all right. I, I am on board with all of that. And yeah, we're, we're covering all of our bases today. Everybody, definitely, you know, just because it isn't Pride Month, don't forget about the the contributions of trans women, trans women of color. And, you know, let's let's also look out for our trans allies and our trans friends and family, because trans folks, especially trans women of color, are, you know, particularly vulnerable, and we need to be there for them because they've been there for us. The protests are, are still going on, folks, in, in cities across the country. People are still out there, uh, even though the news has decided mostly to not report on that anymore. People are still out there protesting police violence every day. If you are doing that, thank you so much. If you're supporting those causes, by spreading information or monetarily. Thank you so much. And yeah, uh, this, this thing keeps on going. So uh, thank you all very much. That's all I've got to say for today. Yeah, I will just say um, one other thing. When we say defund the police, don't just hashtag it on Twitter. Like, find out who your city council reps are and maybe uh, float that into their ear a little bit and see if we can get some more traction with people who have the power to get the ball rolling on that because it really is important that we start doing that. And, okay, that's really all the politics we've got for today. Uh, That's our serious segment. We should just have our, okay, it's time to get serious segment from now i'll 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 come up with music for it maybe (laughs) all right folks thank you all so much for listening uh we will see you next time until then i'm steampunk link i'm emmy zero play it loud Our intro-outro song is How Now Brown Cow by Technoax, who very generously offers a ton of great music for free and royalty-free at technoax.com. That's T-E-K-N-O-A-X-E dot com. Couldn't have done any better on the casting? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, like, the the live-action version of of Aladdin got that pretty good, right? Like, they did... It did, actually, yes. If Disney's being more woke than you, you're messing up. Ironically, just one more thing there. Uh, The Prince of Persia movie, 
also a Disney thing. Oh, but still. okay. Well, never mind then. So, so it's it's just it's just Disney like <laughs> fifteen years later or whatever. So I should have known that because everything is Disney now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm actually Disney. I don't know if you knew that. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm now owned by Disney. I'm so sorry. Me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> 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 All right. Oh, okay. Like half of that's getting cut and being put in the the end thing. <laughs>